0: Welcome to the Western Bowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only, and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled A Deeper Yoga, Moving Beyond Image to Wholeness and Freedom and was given by Christina Sell on June 12, 2021 via Zoom. Christina is a longtime yoga practitioner, teacher and teacher trainer. Her books include Yoga from the Inside Out, My Body is a Temple and A Deeper Yoga. If there is benefit in the talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Christina Sell.
1: Last time I had the opportunity to speak for a few hours with uh, on the Saturday Night Talk series, we talked about uh, the book My Body is a Temple. I've written three books with the help of Regina Ryan, and um, here is my fearless and encouraging editor. And I feel in many ways that I wrote the same book three times, but given that, well, I've been growing and the world in which I've been practicing and teaching has been changing. It's the same book and it's not the same book. My sister is a, uh, an older sister and she is a philosophy professor. She's also a yoga teacher as well. So we, we share that. And one time she and I were talking about yoga. And I said some comment about, well, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. And she said, well, actually, that's not what it says in Greek. (laughs) Okay, well, what does it? She said that that quote is Heraclitus. And uh, she says the quote translates from the original Greek. And it says something more along the lines of, into the same river twice, we both do and do not step. Into the same river twice we both do and do not step. And so it's a lovely reminder I think of an essence of holding two things that are apparent opposites together at the same time. It's the same river. It's flowing down at the same time a storm might come through, changes the rock beds, the river, the eddies, the rapids might change, we change, it's the same river, we're not the same, the river, it's the same river, known by whatever name it's known by, where its headwaters remain. And it's going to end wherever it ends, and yet it's not the same river. And so wrote the same book three times. It's both the same book, <laughs> and it's not the same book. <laughs> and um, same way most of you, if you, um, I'm making an assumption and giving this talk that if at a seven o'clock Arizona time on Saturday night, this is what you're doing, <laughs> you have some familiarity and interest in what I might call the conscious life and what I might call understanding oneself with a spiritual context because you didn't you made a choice to be here as opposed to i don't know doing all kinds of other things you might have done on a saturday night i was reflecting on getting ready to speak i have a somewhat conversational talk style so i have a plan i made notes <laughs> and i also plan uh, loosely uh, so that maybe something else will come through within the structure of plan And I was setting my intention and thinking about the talk. And I uh, was reminded once again of my uh, spiritual teacher. His name is Lee Lasewicz and his guru, Yogiram Sarat Kumar. And when Lee would take his students with him many times, many of us in the Sangha here, would go to India with him to the Yogiram Sarat Kumar Ashram. And Lee would often be invited to say something. And Yogiram Sarat Kumar would say, say something useful my intention is that something i offer might be useful. Uh, i spent a lot of times in recovery with an eating disorder in 12 step communities. and in the 12 step communities they have this saying take what you can use and leave the rest. what it doesn't say is take what you like and leave the rest. it doesn't say take what you agree with and leave the rest. it doesn't say take what affirms your bias. And leave the rest is take, take what you can use and leave the rest. That's been a consideration to me, I think, behind the essence of what I might call my spiritual life, if you will. One of the um, maybe outcomes fruits is the capacity to have more things be useful. More things that life is offering me provide some utility for my growth and development. I recently went to someone's talk and I I really actually didn't like it very much. I didn't enjoy it. I was rubbed the wrong way. It's like um, against the grain, you know, kind of feeling like my hackles went up more than once. I had reactions. I was agitated. I think I looked nice on the outside. You know, I held it together. I'm a grown up, but (laughs) inside I I was activated and it was really useful. It was really useful because in that activation and in the disagreement at times or Maybe even dare I say inner outrage. I was able to investigate why there's a. I can't remember what the word is in Sanskrit. There's a word for practices that go against the grain, or they, they use it like you rubbing the um, the fur on a cat the wrong way. You know. <laughs> And that's kind of how I felt during that talk, like I was a cat and I was rubbing, someone was rubbing my further, wrong way. Uh, yet I got tremendous value out of it over time because it got me thinking and feeling into why I disagreed and in what way I disagreed and it helped me, long story short, clarify where I stood on the topic. And so there's a lot of ways for something to be useful. You might be 180 degrees on the other side of anything that I offer tonight and still be able to find use. And in that way, that part's up to you. (laughs) My aim, my goal, my prayer is that something I offer be useful. And and a lot of that is also uh, how it is that you'll take it, work with it, and refine it through your own thought process, emotional being, and so on. And that led me to think about uh, years ago Another story with Lee he came home from a trip. Some of his students, they went to see this radical teacher in Northern California, E.J. Gold. I think of him as radical. I've never met him, but stories seemed kind of radical. And they came home with all of these stories about this time with this teacher, uh, very dramatic. And, and the, the sort of mood of the stories uh, was pretty fierce and not particularly inspiring to me personally. So much so that as the stories continued throughout the weeks following the trip in our several times a week talks at the ashram, I was kind of upset. And I and I went to Lee and I said, Lee, these, these talks from EJ, they're like ruining my life. <laughs> because there wasn't any nectar there, you know? There wasn't a lot of joy. There wasn't work on yourself, work with yourself, your life will expand. It was sort of bleak from my vantage and my hearing is how it landed for me. And I remember very clearly we were in the ashram and uh, there was, it was where we had this greenhouse. I remember exactly where I was, like it was yesterday. And I said, God, they, they are just really ruining my life. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. That's not for you. It was like, no problem. Don't worry about it, it's not for you. And I was telling that story to my friend, Darren, we were leading an intensive together at his yoga studio down in Tucson. And he and I were talking, we had students do some writing assignments. So we were having our own process. And I told him that story and he says, well, what do you make of that? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, I mean, do you make of that that it's really not for you because you just don't need it or it's really not for you or do you make of that that you can't really handle that? And I said, I don't think it matters. (laughs) And that if I can't handle it, it's not for me. If I can't use it, it's not useful. And if I can't make use of it, then it's not useful. And so I had considerations that then left me with, well, it might be useful. And I was kind of laughing about that and that was my train of thought in terms of setting an intention for our time that it be useful and my hope that I do my part to provide some stories, to provide some insights some, uh, based on my own practice and my own experiences. And then also to know that at the end of the day, what is useful for any one of us is really what we can make use of. And to put that in a sense into our group space so that hopefully that you'll find something that you can chew on and make use of. And if it doesn't feel useful, then you can be like Lee said to me. oh, don't worry about that. That's not for you. And in a sense, I left that exchange like feeling somewhat validated. If I couldn't make use of it, I couldn't make use of it, and it was fine. So there was a mood there that, for me at the time, was not encouraging me to move forward. My understanding of how to proceed on the path is in such a way that you want to, that I want to keep going. And I've, I've had to renegotiate the terms of the contract of my spiritual path many times, realizing, oh, I've made deals that aren't producing a certain result. It's making me want to stop. And when something makes me want to stop, I have to figure out how, in a sense, to keep going. And so the, as I consider deeper yoga, I realized I should probably talk a little bit about uh, what I think a deeper yoga is. The, the context of the book that I wrote the, three times has to do with this recovery process from uh, eating disorders and and, a, and about how the practice of asana and the and really more importantly than the practice of asana, but contact with uh, Lee as my spiritual teacher and the community of people practicing spiritual principles living in a in a group together and practicing as a group started to transform my understanding of of what was living behind some of these, Destructive patterns of eating and destructive, uh, let's say, yeah, destructive patterns of even thought and emotion towards myself and towards the world. So, a deeper yoga, in a sense, what, how I would look at that now in all three books into that same river that I've stepped and not stepped, the premise has been the same that the solution to that particular situation of obsession with appearance never feeling that uh, I looked good enough or thin enough or pretty enough or whatever enough. The lack of enoughness, how it manifested so much in my life was its whole complex around food and body image and over exercising and overeating and a whole range of, of you know pretty typical scenarios if you were to look up what it is to be bulimic. That's kind of how the not-enoughness manifested in my life. And yet many people have this not-enoughness. So for you, your not-enoughness might have manifested in different ways or it might be constellated around a different set of circumstances. And and so that's part of figuring out uh, how it is that you might relate to to that as the entryway. But the premise in all three books is that the the solution to that is not to um, fix it at the level of the problem and its symptoms that that is a symptom of, dare I say, a spiritual malady or an emptiness that's much deeper than the surface. And so we look at even the very title uh, of a deeper yoga. It implies that there's a surface and that there's a depth. A transformation of consciousness. It's a transformation of consciousness that moves practitioners beyond protocols and dogma into a state of consciousness that is anchored in a relationship with spirit or energy or the depth or a deeper experience of reality. And so that's really the, the basic premise and the urge of the book is, is to say that there is a possibility of transforming not just the way we look and not just how other people think about how we look. So this latest time that I wrote the book was really because in the world that I uh, teach and practice yoga, when I wrote the first book in 2001, I think it was, and it was published in 2003, the topic of body image in the world of modern asana practice in America was not a very big topic. (laughs) And over the last few decades, now it's a very hot topic. And people kind of, when I wrote the first book, were like, oh, that's nice. Thanks for sharing. (laughs) And now it's a very big topic. And I wanted to reiterate my premise that uh, no matter what happens at the surface level of life with a greater representation of images and sizes and shapes who practice asana, all of which I think is wonderful, It's not necessarily going to unravel the thing when it's rooted deeper than magazine pictures and rooted deeper than billboards. And so it was really talking about fixing something at the surface. And all of that is really wonderful and can take the forms of beautiful activism, all of which can be really important. And yet the deeper yoga that I was uh, wanting to represent, speak to, and point to was about a transformation of consciousness through practice over time in the field, I would say, of grace. And so that if it's a spiritual problem, it would be solved at the level of a spiritual process. In a lot of ways, we say, if if that's what a deeper yoga is, this movement into a relationship with spirit or with energy or with something universal, something larger than ourselves only, I relate to that as God um but it could have a lot of names it could be consciousness it could be ultimate reality it could be grace it could be the all that is and it really might not even need to have particularly philosophical or spiritual language attached to it to still be operational in the sense that we could even look in terms of science we could say at the surface of life we have eyes and ears that are able to hear a certain level of sound to see a certain spectrum of light. But we now have ways and means to measure those rays of light to know the things that the human eye can't detect. There's more than meets the eye there's more than we can hear. My dog can hear sounds I can't hear. My dog can smell things that I'm not calibrated to smell. So you can actually be somewhat scientific about this. Although to me, it's not really as satisfying of a paradigm, but it might be a doorway in to say that a deeper yoga is actually a movement away from the assumption that what we can participate with and with our senses, see, taste, touch, smell, hear, that there's more than that only. Um, that's scientific. And I, I think it's what the yoga has been pointing to as long as the tradition goes back as far as I understand that. And that's the starting place. And so in a sense, as deeper yoga starts with that assumption that there is more. And people I know, uh, you know, they might want to debate whether there's more or not. That's not the purpose of the talk. The starting point is that there is more. <laughs> so... <laughs> It can be a really wonderful and rich academic debate or philosophical debate about the nature of reality. Is there more than meets the eye or is this it only and that kind of thing. And that's, that's, not, that's not for me because I was really going to be dead if I didn't get to the more. So I, I couldn't really spend much more time not believing I needed a miracle and I needed it desperately. And I've needed it several times over my life with a kind of desperation. And so um, I've relied on that. I was reflecting on that one time. I heard an interview with one of the women who's in the Indigo Girls, and she was raised in the Christian church. And, and she said that as she got increasingly more famous, she stopped praying. And she said, I, I came to realize that I had this unconscious assumption that if I was going to be famous, I just wouldn't need those things anymore. And then she told the story about how she would get on stage. And she would forget the, the song lyrics or she would forget how to play something as well as she used to. And she uh, started praying again. And those things stopped happening. And she said, it doesn't really matter to me whether um, at the at the philosophical level, whether God is real. She goes, it's real for me. And I'm a better me when I pray with regularity. And I heard that interview in a bit of a dark night of the soul of what do I believe? And has it been worth it? And what's it all about? And it was like a a message from the beyond saying, well, what has served you to be the you that that feels more alive that has some some contact and so a deeper yoga has that as the premise and and it's not really an argument about whether that's there or not it's it's the premise that that there is something more than the surface of life that there is a depth and that knowledge and contact and a regular ongoing relationship that moves us towards those depths is intrinsically valuable and can inform the surface and so the premise is that there is more, and then the question sort of becomes, well, if there is more, I mean, if no, then you're probably not at this talk. So. <laughs> but if, if yes, then the question starts to be, how do we move into a relationship with that something more over time? There's a lot of ways and means on this particular path, I would say, with the deeper yoga. This is really a question of a contrasting between what's superficial, what lives on the surface. And then what's deep as opposed to a contrast between what's right and wrong or what's good and bad. And we're looking at where are those things that are superficial and not to say superficial in, in some sort of shaming or judgmental way, because the surface of life is beautiful. Food lives on the surface of life. I love food. Uh, my dog, surface of life. I love my dog. Uh, <laughs> these, there's so many wonderful things to enjoy in the surface of life. Sunsets. Um, all things that we can engage on the surface of life. They're really quite wonderful. And so it's not to say that superficiality is bad and depth is good. And to get into that dichotomy within ourselves about our lives or about our spiritual practice or about our behaviors, but this wouldn't even be a contrast between moral and immoral. It would be a contrast between what things bring me into contact with my depth, what behaviors, what company, what regular practices, what readings, you know, that's all sort of in the behaviors, move us towards the depth, as opposed to those behaviors that keep us animating on the surface only. And when we have a regular contact with the depths, then I do believe the depth has the capacity to inform the surface. And if we only have the surface, then we only have the surface. And when we only have the surface, then how I look, uh, how I look, whether it's relative to weight, if that's the sort of constellation of patterns, or relative to aging and all of the pressures to, to look a certain way through the aging process that is sort of prevalent in our current society, all of what I wear, what I eat, how I look, what I do for a living, all of those things are what I have only. Again, I'm not anti-surface of the life. I'm a big participator. I like to participate in life. So I'm not a renunciate by any stretch of the imagination. One time I asked Lee about building a house on the ashram when the new thing was happening and our ashram was moving from one place. I was feeling zealous and I was asking about maybe building something there. And he laughed at me. He laughed at me. He said, oh no, oh, maybe close by, but no, not you once again, he knew me. <laughs> I am not a candidate for renunciation. I'm a participator. <laughs> but I'm not a candidate for participation only because participation only at the surface of life had me suicidal by the time I was 18 and a life-threatening expressions of eating disorders, drug activity, and all kinds of behavior that was risky. And so I can't have surface of life only. So this is another contrast to me. It's not about one or the other. It's about how they inform one another. So anyway, that is a little bit about the deeper yoga premise. And and it doesn't really matter to me the symptomology that is wreaking havoc at the surface. One of my meditation uh, teachers, he, he uses the image in talking about regular meditation practice. He says, it's like jumping into the ocean. When you jump into the ocean you get some of the salt water on you. And you immerse yourself, let's say, in the ocean. You're all the way wet. And when you get out, you're still wet. You have some of the water still on you. And the idea is most of the water is still in the ocean. (laughs) As it should be, where God designed it to be. You know, if we don't take a shower right away, we have the lingering imprint. We have the stickiness of the salt water on our skin. Even maybe our hair, uh, if we have hair still, you know... (laughs) It's wet for a while, so the idea being that uh, regular immersion into practices and behaviors that move us into the depths of who we are, they stick to us, they stay with us, and then that creates accumulative sets of impressions that then are with us when we come out of the depths, out of the ocean, uh, or out of that ocean of consciousness into the ordinary life, and then the, the depth has informed the surface. Because it stays with us and then it builds up over time. And then we get habituated to this feeling place within the ocean as opposed to habituated to the surface. We start to know ourselves in both domains as opposed to know ourselves in one only. And that to me is really uh, what spiritual practice is about. And as I was considering talking about this idea of spiritual practice over time, I thought about another thing to hold in mind is an apparent contrast that was very present for me And considering what it was like to be a student. And I'm not really even sure I was a great student of of my guru. I feel like I was probably a better devotee than I was a student because I wasn't like someone who was always in on the talks and I haven't read all the books and um, I'm not really a great student. My experience of being around him was like living by the ocean. It was like living in the ionized air that's by the ocean. And I got a habituation of living in that field of energy that I started to recognize a certain energetic field. Um, and I could put his name on it, but it's, it's not even the same thing as it used to be. It's, it's a, an access point to a mood and to a feeling and to that state that to me has the, has the nectar of that ocean of, of depth. And so I would say, yeah, teacher, it's a like a polite way to say my spiritual teacher. Uh, And it's nice to say that I was a student, but I'm actually not sure that I was that great of a student. I I loved him and I loved being around him and I listened and I paid attention, but I I don't necessarily know that I studied. Uh, So But I do feel like something got uh, activated and something got awakened inside me in terms of the capacity to recognize a movement towards depth and the capacity to contrast the surface with the depth. Because uh, my experience about being around him was that it was like, like how it feels to be by the ocean. You can just feel it in the air. It's different. It's different. And I don't think that that was limited to the man at all, uh, but, that's a, but it's a field of energy that became very useful. And I, and I got to thinking about that because in the yoga tradition, so when we talk about yoga tradition, well, that's really vast. I was raised in the Methodist church and I had a reasonably decent Christian upbringing. You know, I loved Jesus. I liked going to Sunday school. I read the Bible. I prayed as a kid. It wasn't very hellfire and brimstone. It was heavy on the Jesus and love and grace and not so much on the Old Testament punishment. Some of that got in there, but not a ton. I had a good church experience on the whole, especially at 52, looking back at what it was like, it was pretty good. And hearing other people's stories of how horrific it was, I feel like I got off very well. I got mostly a good God out of my Christian upbringing. And so I can recognize that I write a book as a white woman raised in America in the Methodist church about yoga. That means that there's certain pieces of my psyche that are not encoded in the depth of that tradition, that parts of my cultural encoding is very American. When I went to Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar Ashram one year and it was on a yoga trip, I was going to the uh, study with some yoga teachers And I spent some time at the ashram, but it wasn't with Lee and the group. It was another group. And I would go to the ashram. And and Ma Devaki was there. So Yogram Kumar Lee's uh, guru. And she was, you know, so amazing. uh, Ma Devaki was his main attendant and very close. I'm saying things that are very simplistic for those of you who know the depth and trying to give a a context because some people may not know all the players that I'm referring to. So I want to navigate the fact that we're coming, hearing some of these stories from, from very vastly different perspectives. And so she was his big devotee and primary, um, like right-hand person and a mandala of women around her. And uh, she met me and she recognized me, I think, as someone who looked American. White girl in a sari shows up at the ashram alone. She comes over to find me. And I tell her I'm one of these students. She goes, oh, that's great. And she takes me around the big temple, the Yogi Rum Kumar ashram. And the first place she takes me is, she takes me to the Ganesh, there's a Ganesh shrine. And she, she says, now, you're not a Hindu. And she goes, but you can pray to Ganesh. So I feel like this was my initiation into Ganesh. It was from Ma Devaki, a Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. And she says, and here's what you do. You put your prayers before him. You put your prayers at the feet of Lord Ganesh. And then you go about your business with the assumption that it's handled. She goes, but you are not a Hindu and I said I know I'm a white girl (laughs) she looked at me and she did not like that self-description she looked at me and she said well you're American (laughs) so she told me not only was I not Hindu but that I could not convert (laughs) and so it was very clear it was wonderful and freeing and and she goes but this is also available to you And so I recognize there are certain things I'm just not, and there's certain things I'm really not an expert, but I am a fumbling practitioner who's coming out of this Christian upbringing as an American. Found my way into this majestic lineage of grace and find myself fortunate and have done Some work over time to study some of the tradition philosophically so that some of those principles and practices, while they're coming to me from a different culture and different times, to study them enough that they aren't so foreign to me to put them into practice in the way that I can with respect, because now there's so much of what's happening that is, I feel like I'm in the yoga tradition, even though I'm an American person and with this background. And I feel like there's a lot to navigate there and, and it's a little bit messy at times. But I, I wanted to say that in the traditions, as I've studied them, we go way back and there's there's a lot of, it's not a lot, but there's not always this whole movement towards agreement. And when we get further into some of the traditions that I've studied that came later into the yoga tradition, in terms of the non-dual Hindu Tantra of Kashmir Shaivism, they will talk about ways of realization. And these are the polarities I started with before I got on my uh, spoiled white girl yoga routine uh, about uh, ways of awakening that are an all-at-once mechanism. There's Sanskrit words for it, that it happens all at once and it happens without means. And I always felt the way that Lee told his story of his awakening, if he, which he became reluctant to use that word. So we use it about him. Uh, my understanding of experience was he stopped using that about himself, but that he talked about a shift of context. And I remember being in many, many talks with him where he talked about, it was basically an all or nothing thing. You're in one context where you are in what he would, you know, would say, let's say duality. You're in one context and then you're not. And it was really, you're here or you're here. And I heard him talk about that a lot. And there also was then that world, there's this, it's like, it's awakening without means. It's like all at once and not necessarily as a result of practice over time. And I think he fits a lot of that description. And so there was always that little piece that I would hear him return to occasionally and sort of speak to. And yet, I don't think this is at odds necessarily with the idea of this habituation and spiritual growth over time. And I think about in studying some and reading some of what I have read about what Lee wrote, even though I said I'm not that great of a student, I'm not terrible either. It's like a B plus, maybe B minus. Anyway, um, Solid C at least. I'm taking grades off as I go through my perfectionistic mindset steps in and I'm thinking, no, B plus is way too generous. But he talked about the early days around him being, well, just wake up. And that would be really great if we could do it. Yet what to do? when that advice is really not actually working for us. I had a friend, she's a recovering alcoholic, and she said, you know, the answers to my problems were really stop drinking. And if that would have worked for me, that was great advice. But the problem became how to do that. Because (laughs) A, she was alcoholic, so she had a physical allergy of the body. And then now in 12 step communities, they talk about you take the drink and the drink takes you. So once you start, the physical allergy of the body means you can't stop. So that's one problem. And then she found she had no control over whether she started or not. So when she started, she couldn't stop, but she also couldn't not start. So the advice of just don't drink actually was essentially what her recovery program was about, but it was also about a long 12-step program so that just don't drink was actually viable. See the difference there? <laughs> like the answer is don't drink. And all of the problems you have associated with your alcoholism will go away. (laughs) Oh, but turns out stopping drinking was kind of a thing. I feel like that around bulimia. Every day I woke up, I said, I'm not going to binge or purge. And every day I did it. And so I was in a bit of a conundrum. The answer was easy. If you stopped binging, you would stop purging. But as soon as I ate, I would be binging. And so that was a bit of a problem for me. And so it actually took a process of growth. For that outcome, which is the same outcome of just wake up, except, well, that would be wonderful. But what to do in the meantime? So I I started to think about how these aren't actually really different ideas, the process of all at once, without means, just wake up, and and that that's true and, and actually very real. And we're in one place or we're in the other. And then there is this slow process of growth over time. And this ways that we have the process to engage those regular visits with the depth such that who we are at the surface is um, informed by that regular contact with the depth. Richard Rohr, who's a wonderful Christian teacher, he's a Franciscan priest. I think they call them priests in the Franciscan tradition. And he um, has a wonderful center in New Mexico, Center for Action and Contemplation. And he's doing some really wonderful, radical work within the Christian faith. I think he's prolific in his writings, got a wonderful podcast. And, and when I started listening to him, he really talks a lot about, I feel like it's non-dual Hindu Tantra meets Christianity. He talks about uh, the Christianity in such a way that is really just profoundly satisfying. And He was doing a little talk on this in riffing a bit on some of uh, Ken Wilber's work where they are kind of talking about spiritual growth and and the phases of our development and practice over time, which is the first phase of cleanup. And if the surface of of our lives is encumbered by behavior that's destructive and causing ourselves harm, and typically when we're causing ourselves harm, we're also causing other people harm. And uh, sometimes it's more obvious that we're causing other people harm than ourselves. And sometimes it's more obvious that we're causing ourselves harm than other people. Something, for instance, even like an eating disorder, it may not actually look like I'm causing someone harm, but the reality is the cost to my relationship is pretty significant. If I'm at the meal thinking about food, thinking about how I'm going to vomit, thinking about all of this obsession, I am actually not with my, my person that I'm having dinner with. I'm with my addiction and it is harmful to my relationships. And, and in my case, I ended up doing all kinds of things that were really quite harmful to other people beyond just harming myself. And, but sometimes it's more hidden the way some behavior is harming others or harming uh, people in our, in our world. And sometimes it's really quite obvious. The first place that he was talking about was clean up. These are, to me, a lot of our dietary protocols, ways to create the surface of life so that it's a little bit more harmonious, where it's a little bit more functional, and keeping in mind that these are not separate sets, like linear, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and step four, but they're going to inform one another. Because as I've already said, I couldn't clean up my outer life before I started to go into the interior, but I couldn't get to the interior until my outer life has semblance of sanity. I have a friend who can't stay still at all. In COVID, she has not stayed home. I just could not do it. Could not do it. Could not do it and can't stay uh, still long enough to get to what's driving her compulsive need to move. And I mean, by still, I mean in in her house, you know, (laughs) and like not just sitting on a cushion stillness, not just being able to rest stillness, talking about creating a lot of surface level drama so that she's actually not available to what's driving that, which is some pain in my observation of her knowing her for a period of time. And so they're not discrete sets. They're going to overlap and we're going to spiral through these steps. For the first step, there is some level of cleanup. And I think that this is wonderful. These are our protocols. Do this and don't do that. And there's nothing wrong with that because it can help us clean up our life into a sense of sanity and doing less harm. And yet I see them as a means, not the end. And so the next stage he, he was talking about was a uh, grow up. So clean up and grow up, which is oftentimes looking at those places in our histories and our personal narratives and the pain of whether it's my actual father was abusive or my mother or the whole family of origin saga that is operative. And the next stage he talked about is wake up. So clean up, grow up wake up and wake up is starting to understand that we're not in this alone. We start to see that, oh, this whole trajectory of the churnings and the burnings of my own personal life and my own very wonderful story and its depths and its tragedies and its traumas, all of that is not happening in an isolative experience, that there is no separate me from the context in which I'm growing up. And there's no separate me from the culture and the society and from the greater world. And we start to wake up to a world beyond ourselves. Someone might start waking up to that and have to go back a few steps and grow up And then the fourth stage is showing up. And that's when we have the capacity to show up in a way that provides some service. It shows up in a way that it might have some usefulness. And I do think many times that show up, the desire to show up, I see this a lot in the people I work with and as a teacher trainer and even in myself, of course, I see that, oh, I want to help other people. Oh, I want to be of service. Oh, I want to do something good in the world. I want to make a difference. And I think it's really, really, really beautiful. This model just keeps us understanding that our capacity to be of service, our capacity to be useful, will be at its height when we've done some measure of cleaning up, growing up, waking up, and then showing up. That it might be something that gets us off the path. That sense of oh, just living for me is the surface of life. How I look and how I uh, other people perceive me is empty. I want to show up and make a difference in the world. That might kick us onto the path, but it's in this model, a really great reminder that it has a measure of culmination and none of these are perfect. None of these are a step where you actually complete it. I don't think I haven't experienced any of this that way, but we complete it. And then we check that off the list. Great. Cleaned up. Next, grow up. Okay. (laughs) One of the most beautiful things that I have experienced is how much we can still be of service in our brokenness. To me, it's not about getting it all done as perfectly as possible and as neat and tidy. I I often laugh as a recovering perfectionistic type that when I started really understanding and looking at perfectionism, I approached perfectionism like a perfectionist would. I'm going to be the best recovered, most perfect recovered perfectionist there is. I'm going to be so good at perfectionist recovery. And really um, that you see, yeah, you're laughing. No one relates to that at all probably, but that to me was its own kind of problem. And I recently went back to Austin, Texas and uh, where I lived for a while. And I went to one of my yoga studios. I like to practice Asana Ad, And the woman who runs the studio is definitely deals with an eating disorder herself. And she was thinner than I've ever seen her. She has a lot of vitality. And and yet she struggles with that. She's been hospitalized for anorexia. And she's clearly in a movement that's in a direction probably for her history that, that could be dangerous. And yet she was very available to me. And I actually felt... The depth of how much she's helped me over the years in her offerings to me. So I want to say that in this model that seems sort of hierarchical and do this, do this and come up and do these things that I don't feel like it's like that in any perfectionistic model because she showed up for me over time in many really beautiful ways and and really created a sanctuary for me in many different ways and a home for me in her yoga studio. And she was still working her own clean up, grow up (laughs) and wake up, show up process. And it wasn't that she had in some culminated thing and then was able to be of service. I don't think it functions like that, but I do think that's a good model sometimes to funnel ourselves back in and through. Showing up to me is really what my teacher, uh, Lee, my guru, would talk about sometimes as being able to serve what's wanted and needed. And showing up in a sense, isn't showing up because I'm so perfect, but showing up in the capacity to serve what's wanted and needed in terms of what reality is asking of me in any given moment. I had a yoga teacher who was talking about meditation one time, and he was talking about how in the Yoga Sutra, it talks about meditation is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So that's a big lofty statement and people, lots of discourse about that and lots of commentary that that one could give about that. And that's not the purpose of this talk. And he said, it doesn't say that it has to be all of them stopped. It's enough of them stopped such that something else can rise. So you might have some hardcore cessation people talking about how they all have to still, but that's not my practice. And that's not the traditions as I've studied them. But it's the same example of this enough cleaned up and enough grown up and enough woken up such that we can show up enough to respond in some way that might be useful. And then my observation of that, my thought on that today is that that then is no top end, that can continually be an ever refining process. And so when I think about what the practice of a deeper yoga is, premise has a lot to do with this idea that, okay, we might wake up tomorrow. You know, you might like literally wake up in the morning and be in a completely different context. You know, it really might happen. It could happen. There's stories of it happening. Um, In the meantime, I have to put my eggs in the basket of slow growth over time. And and while that showing up piece is also one of the slow growths over time, one of the things that has my particular interest has to do with this idea that over time, another manifestation or maybe um, evidence of that kind of growth is the transformation of consciousness such that what I desire Changes. So when we look into some of the yoga tradition and some of its teachings, you're going to get all different ideas on what desire is. You're going to have some very staunch teachings about desire, like desire is endless. I vow to overcome it, and desire is the root of all problems. and uh, And there's some truth to that. So I don't want to contrast things as one is right and one is wrong because almost every teaching that I've ever heard has truth to it, but the level that it's true. And then there's also teachings that come along that start to talk about, well, good luck getting rid of desire. But regular visits to the depth can change what it is that we desire. And to me, that would be the point. I remember the first time, I make it very practical, the first time when in my early recovery from an eating disorder, when I wanted broccoli. like I was no longer fighting broccoli versus hamburgers. I don't have a problem with eating a hamburger. That's not the point of the talk either. But I wasn't fighting between the candy bar and the broccoli, or it wasn't fighting. It was what I wanted... I wanted something that was wholesome and I don't want that every meal. I'm not saying it was this state that I arrived at, but I remember it very clearly realizing I wanted something that prior for a year had been something that was on a protocol. It was on my cleanup. I had to clean up the way that I ate. And so I had a food plan. I had a protocol. I had a plan to follow. I weighed and measured things. And and that protocol, and this is an example of it, that protocol saved my life. So if you told me, you know what the answer is to your bulimia? Eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. It took thousands of dollars of therapy, (laughs) a good two decades of life for that to actually be something I'm able to do with some reliable life force and that is a very simple answer and what it took was protocols. however, if today at 52 I used the protocol that helped me at 23, I would be a crazy person. I would call that level of structure at this point in my life it would be its own eating disorder. And at that time in my life it was unbounded freedom. I knew what I was going to eat. I had little Tupperware containers I took with me. <laughs> I had a structure and I had freedom from food from the structure. If I had that much structure now, I would have only structure and rigidity because a transformation of consciousness occurred such that I was able to do the thing that that was providing. And and this is an example to be very practical, but I think it has a lot of value for uh, spiritual practice over time because I believe that so many of the protocols are about the transformation of consciousness and not necessarily an end in in them of themselves there to serve this sense of growth such that over time that freedom and regular visits to the depth i don't have lack of desire but what if i desired a life in god and what if i desired a life of sanity and i haven't changed desire but the desire has now been informed by that taste of the nectar of the ocean, by being around the ionized air of a force of grace. And so what it is that I have a taste for, go back to my food metaphors of food, food, it starts to change and the surface only becomes less satisfying. One of my teachers I've dabbled in Sanskrit with, she said, distraction is not a problem. A life of distraction is a really a big problem. She was a devotee of Sri Brahmananda Saraswati, and she met him when she was 13 and spent a lot of time with him in his later years. And she said they would do dharma and Sanskrit and chanting and meditation, and then he'd tell them all to go to the movies. (laughs) Okay, go. Now go to the movies. Come back tomorrow. And she says, you know, I have to have some distractions, but she says, that's not the issue. Only the issue is a life of distractions. So that to me is what um, I'm interested in at this time. I mean, like, yeah, I'm really happy if, if enlightenment, if I wake up tomorrow, that would be great. But practically speaking for me, this transformation of desire, I think of it because I think in terms of God. You can't get the Christian out of the girl. You just can't. I have friends and they study, this teacher, and they study with him. And he talks a lot about consciousness. And I, I asked him one time, I had this interview with him in a meditation training. He did a transcendental meditation with uh, Maharishi that he studied with, in Siddha Yoga. After Maharishi left, he found his way to the Siddha Yoga ashrams and spent a lot of time with Guru Mahajid Vala when the ashram was open. And he would spend a lot of time there. He's in his seventies now. And I said, well, I see that you have these pictures of Guru Mai on your puja when you're teaching and and Maharshaji on your altar. I said, but you talk about consciousness and you don't talk about them, although clearly it's a thing for you. And I was like, when I hear you talk about consciousness, I just feel like big yawn. (laughs) And he said, oh, it means all of that for me. And he goes, but I know what you mean. If you're a devotee at heart and you hear someone talk about consciousness, it can feel like, Saltine crackers, and you're like, "Where's the salsa? Where's the peanut butter? Where's the honey?" And uh, because it can be a little bit too dry, but there are people for whom taking God, the three most complicated letters of the English language, out of it is is actually liberating because there's so much clean up and grow up that needs to be done around those three little letters. So I I understand that it's actually very useful to change the names out for other people. And it's always... Um, something I, I endeavor to do to hopefully invite people into the conversation of, of what's bigger, how I envision God and relate to God. And what that means is maybe different and changing as I grow. But what I would say about this transformation of desire, which to me is another piece of what it is that I'm hoping for in growth over time, is that I would want for myself, I would desire for myself what God wants for me. A life of dignity, of sanity, a life of service, a life of, of depth. And so that would be something that over time, I would hope as I was working through these stages of uh, cleanup, grow up and uh, wake up, that that was changing. That would be to me a sense of evidence of growth, that what I wanted for myself was changing because I could not have lasted 20 years on the plan of managing it all with weighing and measuring food or forcing myself to my cushion or forcing myself to my asana mat. So many times people will say, well, well, you're just so disciplined and I'm really not. I do asana because I like to. I like to. More days I want to do it than I don't. And I rarely force myself to do very much. But what I want to do are a lot of those things now. So years ago, I, I was listening to um, an Iyengar yoga teacher. He was talking about being in Pune, India with BKS Iyengar, his teacher. And there was a rare occasion where there was a reporter from the local paper came to interview Mr. Angar and the senior teachers, they were mostly, you know, they were American and Europeans from all over. They were in the interview. So they got to listen to this interview. And the reporter asked the question to Mr. Angar, like, what do you do on the days you don't want to practice? And the teachers were like, you know. Like they were sort of shocked that someone would ask a question like that of, you know, Mr. Godlike Iyengar, the beacon of spiritual practice and ardor. I mean, he has a very big, a lot of warrior nature in his practice. And then, uh, but this particular person who was telling the story said inside, he was also first shocked and then really intrigued because he knew he wouldn't have, and none of their colleagues would have dared ask the question. He was curious. So it was one of those things that an innocent person from the outside doesn't know not to ask, but everyone who's sort of seasoned inside the situation would just be too appropriate to ask. And he's like, I really did want to know. And Mr. Anger said, well, I do one pose. And many times that one pose, I get interested. And he goes, and if it doesn't come, I let it go. And then he said, but three or four days go by and it doesn't come, then I get fierce with myself. So to me, that's a wonderful story on two considerations for me on that story. Okay, I do one pose and I get interested. So I take the shape of the pose and see if putting my body into the shape gets me interested. And My dad used to say... uh, It wasn't particularly helpful when I was a teenager and he was preaching this at me, but it is useful now. He would say, it's easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than think yourself into a new way of acting. And so it's kind of like that. I I really, I think I swore a lot at him when he would pitch that to me as a teenager, but he had something to say about that. Mr. Anger is saying the same thing. Put yourself into the shape. So sit on the cushion, Uh, do some small thing. And if you get interested, this is also a story that I think is really inspiring because he's the great, great asana practitioner. And he says, and I see if it comes. And if it doesn't come, I let it go. So he's admitting that it doesn't always come. And then I got to thinking, what is this it? I thought, what is this it of which he speaks? (laughs) And I really think it's it's not just the interest, although the interest is required. So he has to be in place. An interest has to occur and something is going to emerge. Something is going to come from the depth. And I think it's that it, that God nature, that depth coming up from and saying, okay. And that it-ness that he's talking about to me is really talking about this current of energy that nature is to draw us inward. And we can look at two basic streams of consciousness in terms of, I don't mind thinking about consciousness in that way, but two basic streams of consciousness. And one is the outflow of consciousness. I've been talking about that. It's the sense organs. It's we open up our eyes in the morning and our world takes us into it. And our surface level is sort of involved with the senses. I see it, I reach for it, I eat it, <laughs> I hear it, I want it. And uh, is driven by this outflow of attention. And that happens for free. I mean, that happens because we're human, because we're wired that way. So we're going to get that for free. And so when I say life at the surface only is is like the MO for me, for any of us, it's not a shame-based statement. It's it's by design. We wake up, our eyes, in a sense, close to the inner life. They open to the outer life and we're pulled into it, swept away in the the current of the next shiny object, whatever that is. And that's just by design. So I, I might sound like it's not that nice, but I, I don't feel ashamed about it. That's just the way we're, that we're functioning, uh, design. And yet there's this other current. I actually think the, the Vama current, in Sanskrit it does have a Sanskrit word, the Vama current, same root as uh, vomit. <laughs> the outflowing uh, current. Um, the Jayestra current, I think it's called, is the inward moving current. And so there's also an equally installed natural current within each of us that moves our attention inward. And this is the current we want to hop on when we meditate. This is the current he hops on when he gets interested so that the it can come. And the cool thing about the Jayastra current, that inward moving current, is it's always attracted to the depth. It will find the depth more interesting than the surface. So, the senses and the outward moving current will always find the surface more interesting than the depth. Generally, most of us don't need a lot of training in how to ride the outward flowing current because that's just part of our humanity. Whether it's asana, where we're saying, put your body here, move it this way, lift up here, keep that, don't do that. All of that is saying, get your attention going inward, get it in your shape so that it can be in this inward moving current. This is, I believe, the current of mantra. This is the current mantra hops us onto. We might say the name of Yogi Ram Kamar in the spiritual school, you know, I'm part of. We might sing hymns from the Christian tradition. We might sing uh, Hare Krishna. We might do any kind of thing. The sound, the vibration, the movement of the breath and through the sound and the vibration in the body can switch the movement of our minds from the outflowing current to the inflowing current. And it will find the mantra more interesting than the shiny object not maybe right away, because anyone who's tried to hop on that current goes, I'm on the current, I'm off the current, I'm off the current, I'm on the current, I'm off the current. (laughs) But habituated time, you can actually create a pathway where hopping on that current gets increasingly more easy. Ideally, easy, but if not easy, doable. So the interest of that inward moving current is towards the depth. And so it becomes a delightful inner journey. But typically when we start hopping on the current, all of the cleaning up and growing up and waking up that's yet to be done starts to surface also. Because we've stopped the outward flow and so all of this material that's there to be done is just waiting for us and it's a very difficult stage of practice, I believe. So I'm not talking about something that, hey, let's all meditate and you're going to love it today. Maybe. But chances are we don't, which is why it's hard to do and why it's hard to keep doing it. But, but I think that's the it that he's talking about. I get interested, and the interest becomes focused on what's happening in the internal experience of the asana. And so, that whole movement of hopping on that interior current, regular visits to the depth, and then bringing that experience starts to transform us back into our lives, starts to inform the surface, our desires change. And this is like the big promise of this lifetime and many. So, I don't say, oh, yeah, we'll knock this one out, us perfectionists, we'll have this handled by the end of the weekend. Now that you know what you did with your Saturday night. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to have it handled, but I, I feel like it's, it's an experiment and a, and a, um, a life worth living to see what if this regular contact with my depths does change me. And when we talk in the yoga tradition, uh, in Patanjali, he talks about pursuing practice. The first ingredient he gives is faith. He says practice uh, should be pursued with shraddha, with faith. And one of the things that a lot of the commentators say about that is that it's not necessarily religious faith. It's not like faith of the faith of belief or faith in a dogma or faith that you have to agree to a whole set of parameters to get going. As much as faith that that engaging the practice will be useful, will be good, will be good for us in some way. It's a kind of faith that is like the faith in the Christian tradition say you need the faith of the size of a mustard seed to move mountains. You need enough faith to engage, to participate in these uh, activities, practices, endeavors that start to create a movement inwards or to take us to what's deeper than the surface. And that's really the essence of the book. It's got other stories in there, but that's really um, to me what. Um, A deeper yoga is pointing us to regular uh, visits to the depths such that those visits start to change how we experience ourselves and experience our life on the surface like that. You know, I um, remember where I brought some students with me to uh, our ashram in Arizona. um, There's a lot of pictures of Lee up there. You know, I mean, there's a lot. And, uh, (laughs) And so... We had a big range of all very sincere really wonderful self-actualizing people great people some more prone to this devotee life and some not so much this one person at the end of the visit i was like well how was that for you you know she was pretty quiet through a lot of it and she's clearly cooking with something and and she said to me she goes well i mean she had enough training to know it's not about the person it's about what he represents and uh I got to thinking about it, you know, I had to get back to her after that. So she has an, you know, Murti and an icon of Hanuman. She goes, I mean, I kind of feel like that maybe when I look at Hanuman, she saying, but I don't know, the picture of the person, just really problematic. I mean, I know is what it represents. And I got to thinking about it but I got back to her and I reflected on it. And I said, you know, for me, it's not representational at all. I said, it's not, it represents something to me. It's that it evokes something in me. It's not a representation. I look at my guru's picture or the Murtis I have uh, or the images I have of Lee or Guru Ram Sarakumar, Swami Paparandas, and particularly with Lee, uh, because I knew him personally. And some people feel it with other things, but it wasn't representative, it was evocative. And it's evocative of a mood of love. And that mood of love is the nature of that ocean of depth. And that to me is the it that arises. It's not intellectual for me. It's mood. It's the invitation into the ocean of my own heart in the field of love that I get. And when that rises, then I'm into something. And I'm interested. I mean, a deeper yoga, I would maybe sum it up and say, it's anything... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that opens the doorway to that vastness, to that expanse within me. That becomes now my tangent point. That becomes my touchstone for the rest of us. Like that becomes the, the litmus test or the barometer against which other experiences are gauged. And another fantastic Iyengar yoga teacher, she was a heroin addict when she started doing asana. Uh, Mr. Iyengar, who has got all these wonderful senior teachers When they came, they were in the generation of seekers in the 60s that went to India, who did a lot of drugs and went to India and they were doing drugs. And anyway, she was a heroin addict. I mean, not a hardcore. I mean, I don't know how you're a soft core heroin addict. She used heroin. Let's say that. (laughs) And she said there was a period of time she chose daily between shoulder stand and heroin. I mean, she had some choice at least. So something had happened. But she didn't always choose the shoulder stand. And she said the first glimpse that she said she could stop the use of drugs was she started to feel it, a rise in shoulder stand. It was the first feeling of nectar she had that wasn't chemically induced at that time in her life. And she goes, in some days I chose the heroin. But it's the it. It's like the nectar, the sweetness. And so I'm interested in those things. And too much purity protocol and too much thou shalt and thou shalt not gets to me, there has to be enough such that I'm not a crazy person, (laughs) but there has to be in service to the love rising, not in service to the continuity of thou shalt and thou shalt not only. So yeah, but not representational, not for me, but it might be for someone else.
2: I was thinking about all of these practices, you know, that we can do things that we can engage in It could be something so simple, it could be asana practice, it could be mantra practice, it can be um, walking outside in nature and being attentive to the natural world that take us into the depth. And there are times that life pulls us so deeply into the depths, into the ocean, that We're never the same afterwards, and our lives become much more profoundly informed by the depths, and it's a process that happens. We can call it purification. I like to call it love because I think that what really moves us in those ways and what moves life through us in those ways is a force of love. So sometimes it's like we're not looking for anything. We're not trying to do anything. But life takes us into itself so deeply. It could be through loss. It could be through anything, anything that's happened, any kind of change, anything like that. And we are, after that, more informed by the depths without us trying to actually do anything about it. So just the sense of this movement of life. I think it's grace, I think it's love, but it can be grueling. It can be very, very grueling. But we have a relationship to the depths after that. If we can keep our eyes open and we can keep moving forward through it, you know, it can be completely uh life changing and impactful in that way. So
1: Richard Roar says, uh Two great openings into a love of God is a great love and great sorrow.
0: Christina, I was just thinking about how you speak about your teacher, your guru. And we live in the West where there's good reason to be in distrust of authority figures. But
1: we're in the age of gurus behaving badly. Yeah.
0: I don't know if it's always been that way or or not, but it seems that there is a lot of that. But, you know, I haven't been into yoga so much, although I've enjoyed it on a few occasions when I've done that. It seems, though, that the yoga tradition comes from a place where relationship to a guru is understood. And you speak very directly about your relationship. Do you think that this encourages people to take a deeper look into the path? or to examine something that they might ordinarily just have a reaction to it. Or do you just speak your own reality and, you know, whatever happens, happens?
1: Maybe more like that. You know, I feel fortunate in that in terms of the the guru paradigm, I feel that I've benefited from it and continue to. I like the me that's the devotee. I like the mood, the texture, the depth my life has, the sense of connection i feel to myself and and something greater when i'm in relationship to that to that entry point to that doorway which i really feel like i got from lee so it's just very real for me even in the school so like i don't feel like i had an abusive guru so i don't want i don't want to run away from the fact he was a complicated character and he was a complicated character of more for some than for others but i will say that I'm not necessarily an advocate for uh, like a conversionistic type. If you sit next to me on a plane and you ask me what I do for a living, I am not the yoga teacher who tells you you should do yoga. I'm a preacher to the choir type person. So I, I definitely will never be someone who says, oh, and you'll just love yoga. You should do it. The whole world should be doing yoga. I don't think that. So I'm very open about my relationship with Lee. my relationship with the gurus, I talk about it to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the context that I'm in, but it's not a secret for me. And it's not, and because it's been, it was actually a pretty much a glorious love for me. And there's been complications I've worked through and done a fair amount of therapy on it. Uh, But it's been a good thing. It's at a place where it is good for me. And uh, so, but the context of that isn't to get anyone else to do it. And as a result of that, Um, It's just to be where I am and standing in what I stand for. When I wrote my first book, I talked very openly about my relationship with Lee. And I had asked Lee when I was writing the first book, I said, you know, a lot of times when people write about you, they write in these sort of uh, guarded terms and they don't really talk very forthrightly. Is that because you don't really want people to know about it? Or is that like a home community thing? That's the name of the school, home community. Uh, For those of you who aren't, And I said, is that because you want it that way? And he goes, no. He said, you should write it how it is for you. And so I did. But when I speak about it, my hope isn't necessarily to recruit anyone or to convert anyone, because I feel like that's a call that gets answered from within and was set up outside of space and time. and That finds you and all of that. So there's two things for that with me. And one is very clearly my hope is that if I stand where I am spiritually with clarity, with a sense of dignity and appreciation, then wherever someone stands spiritually, they can stand next to me. And that means that my Christian friends um, talk to me about Jesus. And um, one of the weird things in the yoga world is my Christian students, wonderful practicing Christians, they worry about talking about their faith. Meanwhile, new agey types worry about talking about something from the Indian tradition for offending the Christians. My experience has been that when I'm where I am in my faith and in my perspective, then uh, my hope is that it gives someone else to be where they are and that we're meeting in that place of love. We're meeting in the tradition uh, invites us into that itness, into the rising up of love and that we can share that. And so I'm not interested in converting someone. I'm not interested in being converted, but I'm, I am very, very respectful of other people's faith. And so that to me is more of the mood of it. Is And and I think when I wrote my first book, because it was also so much about some of my own pain and trauma and eating disorder, I think a lot of people just forgave me, my guru. So they weren't really so triggered by it. They're like, oh, that poor girl, after what she'd been through, she needs that guru. <laughs> and I did. And the truth is, I did. So they weren't wrong. You know, I think it's this majestic, amazing opportunity of 18,000 lifetimes. But, you know, they just probably forgive it of me. So that to me is more of the spirit of it is really, and I also do have an ongoing inquiry that leads to talk about making the teaching available. And so I don't think that means converting anybody, but I do think that if someone is hungry for depth, I do have an occasional come off to the side of the road meeting with myself kind of thing and say, if they had to find it through me, could they? Like, if someone needed the teaching, could they find it through me? I'm not saying I'm their teacher. I'm just saying, could they find something? Could they find a doorway in and through me? Is my life such that someone who hungered for depth could get one step closer to this thing they ached for through something that they found in, in my company? And sometimes my answer is, you know, I am not conducting myself in a way that is a great example. The truth is I gotta go clean something up. I've been a little, you know, slack or something like that. Or, or, you know, I have really indulged that little freedom a little too much. And, and I'm not actually in my best place. I'm not the best representation of those things that I know. James Finley has this great expression. He's a, a wonderful Christian teacher. And he says, you want to keep faith with your awakened heart. I will not break faith with my awakened heart. Now, when we have grown, expanded, touched the depths through sorrow, through loss, through happenstance, when in 12 steps, they say life is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but God swept you into the current of depth through, through tragedy, through loss, through suffering, and did for you what you would not have done for yourself, that kind of thing. And his point was, When that happens and it awakens us like a a balloon, this is another image, like a balloon, it just can't go back to where it was before it had expanded. It can shrink back, but its capacity has always been, it is forever changed from the first balloon. And when that's us, then the task becomes, how will I keep faith with that? And for me, the truth is, will I and how soon will I tell the truth when I've broken faith with it? when I'm not acting according to that expanded state that I know and and when I've contracted back, not with shame, not with judgment. So that would be the other avenue of that. It's not about converting, but it's about saying, is, is my awakened faith in any way a doorway for somebody else to do the same for them? Not necessarily in the way that I did it, but to say that something might be possible.